Good afternoon, everybody. I do understand that you're still in the mood of lunch and also enjoy Madame Hu's talk. But uh, given the schedule issues, I guess I'm sorry I have to pull you back because we have also a very exciting session is waiting for you. My name is Zhu Ming. I'm a deputy governor of the People's Bank of China. Today is a great honor for me to chair this session called The Climate Change and Economic Growth. I think nothing is more important or is more attracts people's attention on these issues as well. The crisis says, well, we need a new growth model. The crisis says, the old war is past. We'll run into a new war. The crisis says, we need a much balanced growth and we much greener growth. So climate change and economic growth really touch everybody's hearts, really on the agenda of everybody's today. We're very happy today we have two renowned speakers here. Lord Nixon, I don't think he needs a lot of introductions. Everybody knows him because he wrote his well-famous report with his name, Nick Review on Economics of Climate Change in 2007. But before that, in 1993 to 1997, he was chief economist for European Development Bank, and later for 2000 to 2003, and he was chief economist and senior vice president of the World Bank. And then he was advisor for UK government, drafted well-known and famous reports, which Nick make you today also even more famous. But I want to say a few things about Nick. I remember my personal experience. 20-some years ago, I was a young economist in the World Bank. I remember the first book was the next book about the growth and the power of growth. And later, I wrote his book. It's a big, sick book, Tax Theory for Developing Countries. It's a classical textbook for taxation for all the developing countries at that time. It's a big book. I read all the pages. And then later, he moved to climate change. I think I clearly see Nick as a scholar sitting in the UK, but he has the mind and the visual of the world. He's a true international intellectual. Now, next to him is the Minister Liu He. Not people may don't know him because he's a little bit of a mystery. The mystery because his title is very interesting. He's the Vice Minister for Central Leading Group on Finance and Economics. You know, everybody knows the group is the smallest unit. When you go back to school, you have a group discussion, right? You have a group study. So that's a small group. He's that vice minister for that small group. But there was a key and important group because that's a group responsible for China's macro policy formations and for implementation. He himself is directly responsible for China's macroeconomic issues and directly report to senior Chinese leaders. So he's not often in public. That makes him a little unknown. But also he's a renowned economist. He's also active in economic research as well. He himself is a founding father for one of a very important organization called Economist 50. He gets the 50 most renowned economists together, periodically study, research, on particularly China macro issues and the global financial economic situations. So I think it's a great, great opportunity for us to have today to have an interesting session, and particularly for me, I'm also looking for the, for the dialogue between to this very interesting renowned scholars on the very, very hot issue, climate change and economic growth. Please give a warm welcome to Lord Nick Stern.
Next, please. Thank you very much, uh, Zumini. It's a, a great honor for me to um, speak here with you in the chair. And uh, you won't know that um, Zumin just flew back from Hong Kong, uh, and he has to go back again to Hong Kong, and he's made a very big effort uh, to get here. So, Zumin, thank you very much. You're also going to have to give Zumin another round of applause because Zumin is about to go to a very senior position at the IMF, and the world will be a much safer and more interesting and better run place as a result. Thank you very much, Zumin. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I also wanted to thank. Uh, my long-standing friend, Liu He, for being with us today. I won't repeat what Zumin said, but I just wanted to say that much of what I've learnt about the economy in China, I've learnt from Liu He. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Now, I'm going to speak fairly quickly because I've got quite a lot to say, so I hope I don't give the interpreters too difficult a time. Um, but I wanted to speak, of course, about the subject, uh, climate change and economic growth, but it's very important to set that in the context of where we find ourselves now in the world. And this was a major theme at the China Development Forum, which I attended uh, last weekend and on Monday, and we had the privilege of um, meeting the Premier uh, after that and discussing some of the issues with him. Now, we're at the beginning of a vital decade, a decade full of opportunity, but I think a decade also with danger. And we have to recognize both the opportunity and the danger. The rich countries, through their own incompetent economic management, have got themselves in a position where debt-to-GDP ratios are rising rapidly, and many of them have very big uh, public finance deficits, which of course is why the debt-to-GDP rate ratio is rising rapidly. They have to stabilize that, and it's going to take them a few years, not just one or two years, a few or several years to do that. Secondly, we have um, basic macroeconomic imbalances connected with the first issue. Savings in rich countries have been very low, and that has been associated with the balance of payments deficits. So we do have basic macroeconomic imbalances, which arise because of the activities of everybody in the world. It's a world uh, interacting system. And those macroeconomic balances will have to be uh, corrected sometime over these next five or ten years. We don't have to do it all tomorrow, but we have to deal with them as a world over uh, five or ten years. In other words, big countries can't go on running deficits forever, and those have to be sorted out. That's a, a key issue. Thirdly, this is the beginnings of an extraordinarily important industrial revolution. We as a world have to find our way to low-carbon growth for all the reasons we'll be discussing, and we have to start that process very quickly. Uh, because there's so much to do and so little time to do it. It will be a very exciting process. That's part of the story I want to tell today, but it's a major adjustment. Fourthly, China's economic model is changing. It's changing through a very natural process that follows from success. As China's success um, manifests itself, China's wages, China's skills rise. So China will move from a low-cost manufacturing base for its growth to a... It'll move up the value chain. It'll be a, a model of growth based much more strongly on skills, higher wages. It'll be a model of growth in which 
the service sector starts to take a bigger share of the economy. All this is a function of success, but it's an adjustment. If you move from one sector to another, one sector declines, another sector rises. Uh, economies uh, around the world in economic history don't find, always find it easy to deal with change of this kind. China actually has managed it much better than most other countries, but there's a phase now in China's economic growth which will be very important and very strong. And finally, China is already a superpower. And the whole world, including China, has to work out what its role in the international economy and international political economy is going to be. We're already seeing Chinese leadership. Um, my uh, friend uh, Lin Yifu, Justin Lin, is chief economist of the World Bank. Uh, Zhu Min, as we heard, is going to be in a very senior position in the IMF. Uh, these are just two examples, important examples, but two examples of the way in which Chinese ideas, analysis, influence, experience will come to play a bigger role in the world. And we're going to see it across so many different parts of economic and political and social life. So all these things come together to be a decade where major adjustments are going to have to be made around the world, but a decade of real opportunity. If we, as a world, do this well, we can stop the deficits in the rich countries rising. We can move to um, correct the international imbalances. We can find our way to low-carbon growth, and we can. Uh, China will make that change away from the relying mainly on low-cost manufacturing to other things. And we will, as a world, find a way of working together in a very constructive and collaborative way uh, where China has an absolutely central role across the whole political and economic stage. All this could be very exciting and positive, but there are dangers. Unemployment in the rich world poses real threats of protectionism. We should not underestimate those threats of protectionism. We're going to see high unemployment in many rich countries for some time, and those threats of protectionism are going to be real. It's going to be people like ourselves who understand the importance of uh, open markets who are going to have to speak up. But it's not just speaking up on open markets. We're going to have to speak up about management of this whole set of changes that I've just described. It's the responsibility of universities to do exactly that. We cannot just sit quietly. I know people in LSE don't sit quietly, but we cannot just sit quietly and do our research. We have to take it out. We have to collaborate. We have to work very closely with Chinese researchers. This is a period where the responsibility on the academic community, I think, is of vital importance. Now, at LSE, we've been working on China for so many years, so many decades. And I think we are a place where this kind of work can be done. We also, it's no credit to us, but we also have the advantage of being in the UK. It's going to be easier to analyse some of these problems, not only speaking English, which we can't claim any credit for, but also not speaking English with an American accent. <laughs> that is, I think, an advantage. Again, we cannot claim credit for that. That's what happened. But it is a place, the LSE, I think, is the place for the deep, difficult, but fascinating social science research on all these adjustments should be taking place. It is taking place, but our responsibility is to intensify that research, take it out, and work still more closely with our Chinese collaborators. I wanted to say that at the beginning, because it's context for everything else I will have to say, and it's a vital moment, and academics have to take social responsibility. That's part of our job, and we all often hide in our universities. In these next few years, we cannot hide in our universities. Now, let me talk, go very quickly in that context to my subject. We risk, with unmanaged climate change, unprecedented changes in global climate and temperature, unprecedented in the lives of human beings. Unmanaged climate change would take the concentrations at the end of this century to levels which would imply a roughly 50-50 chance 
of a 5 degree centigrade rise relative to the 19th century. That just follows from the level of emissions, the rising emissions, and the basic science. This is science that's been known, uh, uh, really, the study of this issue, the identification of the key issues, comes from the 19th century. Um, some of the greenhouse gases have uh, oscillations within the molecules which impede uh, long wavelength energy from escaping from the Earth. The ultraviolet comes in when it's uh, reflected from the Earth's surface. Some of it changes to infrared, and the greenhouse gases, with their oscillations, interfere with this longer wave energy, and it prevents some of that energy escaping. Basic, simple physics. It's the greenhouse effect. If you look at that story and ask how big the changes are likely to be, given the rate of accumulation of greenhouse gases, you come to the conclusion that if they're unmanaged, by the end of the century, we have a roughly 50-50 chance of 5 degrees centigrade increase since the middle of the 19th century. We have not seen that as a planet for 30 million years. Three zero million years. We humans, at least Homo sapiens, have been around for about 200,000 it would be unprecedented in, our, in the experience of human beings. Some areas would be underwater. Some areas would be uh, deserts. Probably most of southern Europe would be a desert. So if you have a, a holiday home in um, uh, Nice, in the south of France, you should probably think of moving northwards over these next few decades. Um, the uh, climate will change in terms of rainfall very drastically. Uh, the Indian, North Indian monsoon would likely change in a fairly radical way. And when it does change, it will change very quickly. We cannot predict exactly how much. This is a story of the management of risk. We cannot predict ex exactly what these outcomes will be. But we can see that they're very risky indeed. It would involve the movement of hundreds of millions of people when a lot of coastal areas start to uh, go underwater when a lot of the rainfall structure changes radically, when the flows of the river change, when some places become deserts, people move, and they will move on a scale that we have not seen before, and uh, that would surely imply, if history teaches us any lessons at all, extended severe and global conflict. This is the magnitude of the risks. We have to understand them, we have to manage them. But there's a really positive story here. Low carbon growth, is possible. We can see the outlines of what it looks like right across the board. We can see low carbon technologies all the way from uh, agriculture, low till agriculture, not flooding the paddy fields, which creates lots of methane, wastes lots of water, and actually they're much higher productivity ways of managing the water. All the way through the, buildings, the building sector, and new materials, new ways of doing things, and generating electricity in buildings, all the way through to electric cars, to much better public transport, and of course, electricity generation. We can see the beginnings of all this. We can see what it, looked like, what it looks like. I can't give a talk to a business audience without going away with my pocket full of cards of somebody who's got a new technological idea. If only 10% of those ideas are sane and 90% are insane, we will still have enough technologies going forward and we're going to discover a whole lot on the way. This will be more exciting than, the elect than electricity, railways, motor cars, information technology. More exciting than those previous great bursts of growth as a result of technology. That is the story that we have to tell. That's the story that I believe to be uh, uh, correct. But it has to be demonstrated analytically. And even more important, it has to be demonstrated by example. One of the great things about China is that you know how to use the power of the example. The power of the example, I mean, if you, you take your mind back to the household responsibility system, which was the, the first step along the way to the great uh, opening up and economic reform that we saw, that began, that began with examples. China knows how to use examples, and we desperately need strong examples. So this is the story. It's full of risk, and it's full of opportunity, but it's also full of inequity. It's the emissions of the rich countries that, co that constitute the majority of the concentrations that we see in the world now. Rich countries got rich on high carbon growth. Poor countries and rich countries together now have to go forward with low carbon growth. That is a fundamentally, inequ fundamentally inequitable story. If you think of there being a fixed size of well 
which is the capacity, or a fixed reservoir, which is the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb um, uh, emissions without getting too dangerous, we in the rich countries have been drinking from that reservoir for 200 years. My own country, UK, particularly strongly in the early years, but after that, of course, you see uh, very strong drinking from that reservoir from the United States and elsewhere. But now, as that reservoir starts to get empty, we're all going to have to uh, be careful about the resources of that reservoir, which is the remaining emissions that we can accommodate as a world. It's also the poor countries that are hit earliest and hardest by all this. That fundamental inequity is a reality. Uh, it's something which we should all understand. And we have to, it's a big political reality as well as an analytical reality. And we must understand it. And it is behind a fundamental principle of the international negotiations, which is that there's common but differentiated responsibility. In other words, as manifested, as manifested in the Kyoto Protocol, rich countries have binding targets. The poorer countries make their plans, and we hope that the rich countries assist in that process, but they don't have um, binding responsibilities. But they do, and they are, taking on the challenge of moving to low-carbon growth. That's something which is fundamental to all this. Now, let me say a few words about Copenhagen. Now, there are many students, former students here from the London School of Economics. Indeed, this is the majority of you. Now, cast your mind back to the 1960s. Cast your, I know that some of you can't do that because you weren't students in the 1960s, but a few of you were. And imagine students' unions' meetings in the 1960s. Constant points of order, demands of uh, unanimity, not letting uh, representatives negotiate with the university authorities unless they had a clear and specific mandate from the students' union. Just imagine, take your mind back, that was Copenhagen. It was the most chaotic meeting, international. I've been to many, many international meetings in my life, and it's the chaotic, most chaotic I've ever seen. President Lula gave a wonderful speech. He put aside the notes which the bureaucrats had prepared for him, and he said, I've been a union negotiator for much of my adult life. He said, I have seen some very chaotic negotiations, he said, but I have never, ever seen anything like this. Of course, he got a big round of applause, but it was true. All this is true, but Copenhagen was not a failure. It was disappointing. It was chaotic. But out of Copenhagen came the Copenhagen Accord. It was born, as I said, in chaos, and it was born with quite a lot of acrimony. But there it is. Two degree centigrade targets, uh, a specification of $100 billion per annum of flows between uh, rich and poor countries by 2020. Good progress on forestry. And, of course, it was put together with uh, China, India, South Africa, Brazil, and the United States working together. Not always a very happy partnership, but it was a partnership, and it produced something which gives us a platform for going forward. Now, when we left Copenhagen, we did not know that that was a strong platform for going forward. It could have collapsed, but it had a deadline of January 31st for people to submit their plans for admissions, rich countries and poor countries. Submissions were made by all the major economies, and they now cover over 80% of emissions. Um, that was a solidifying of the platform. A high-level panel has been established to examine new sources of finance to generate $100 billion per annum from rich to poor countries. Uh, I'm uh, a member of that panel. Uh, it, it, it's quite a good panel, I think, not because I'm a member. Let me suggest other people. Um, uh, the, one of the greatest, arguably the, the greatest finance minister since the Second World War, Trevor Manuel of South Africa, is a member. The head of the planning commission in India, Montek Singh Alawalia, is a member. Larry Summers, chief economic advisor um, to President Obama, is a member. My great friend, uh, Ju Guangyo, who was, uh, we were together at the World Bank in uh, seven or eight, ten years ago, he's a member. This is a very strong, I hope, committee, and I hope we're going to come up with strong results. The uh, work on forestry is already proceeding with a very successful meeting in Paris just uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it turned out, with all the problems, it turned out to be a platform for going forward that seems to be 
solid. We've got so much more work to do, and let me point to some of that uh, work. But I also want to draw attention to the misunderstanding and the acrimony that occurred in Copenhagen. It underlined very strongly that leaders of different countries find it often very difficult to understand each other. They have not studied the countries that they're talking about or talking to. And let me give you just one example. Towards the end of the two weeks, um, Premier Wen Jiabao uh, indicated, because China had, it, had set out its 40 to 45% reductions uh, in emissions per unit of output 2005 to 2020, he indicated and explained that China usually sets targets that it can, can exceed because China studies before it sets targets. It works out what's possible. Many prime ministers or presidents around the world say, if you want a target, I've got a target. You want me a bit more? Yeah, we'll have a bit more. China doesn't do things that way. China works things out. It studies. It sees what's possible. And I don't think that many of the people uh, discussing these issues with China, negotiating with China, really understood that. It's an example of how, in order to see what we're talking about, you have to understand what uh, is the structure, in this case, of economic planning in China. Uh, we have to live with the structure in the United States where Congress has a very powerful uh, role over what happens, and presidents of the United States cannot always commit unconditionally because they depend on Congress. Now, that's a fact of life. We all have to understand these kinds of uh, issues. That's why universities like the LSE, I think, are uh, so important. Now, let me just give you a few numbers. These numbers matter. I will test you on them at the end of this uh, talk. We are now about 47 billion tonnes per year. We've declared for a two degrees centigrade target, and I, I emphasise risk and uncertainty. When we say two degrees, we normally talk of a 50-50 chance of two degrees. There's no certainty if we follow the path that I'm going to describe that we reach two degrees, but this way we give ourselves a roughly 50-50 chance. 47 billion tonnes now. It should be around 44 billion tonnes in 2020, well below 35, probably 31, 32 billion tonnes in 2030, and well below 20 billion tonnes in 2050. That's the basic science. Of course, you can always do a little more now and a little less later, or a little less now and a little more later. But there's not that much flexibility. There's some, but not that much. So this is where we have to be. If you look at the Copenhagen submissions, they indicate that in 2020, if everybody does what they say, and I think China is one of the very few countries who have made unconditional commitments. Most, many of the other countries have made conditional commitments, you know, depending on Congress, depending on what other people do, and so on. China's are unconditional. But if you assume that everybody meets what they've said, we will be, in 2020, about 48 billion tonnes, very close to where we are now. That would mean we as a world would have peaked between now and then, because if we're at roughly 47 now, if we're at close to 48 10 years from now, then somewhere in between we must have hit a maximum as a world. Of course, uh, different countries will peak at different times, and uh, the rich countries should not be peaking. They should just be falling as of now. And many of them, of course, are doing exactly that. That's the story. Now, let's just... China is a very, very big country. Therefore, it's very big in these numbers. China is around 9 billion tonnes per annum now. Uh, looking at China's Copenhagen-submitted plans... China will probably be about 11.5, roughly, uh, billion tonnes in 2020. Much depends on where China goes after 2020. We don't know that because the learning process between here and 2020 will be extremely important. So we don't know where China will go after 2020, but suppose that China added another 2.5 billion tonnes to its emissions. So it went up 9 to 11.5, 2010 to 2020. Suppose that it went up 11.5 to 14, 2020 to 2030. That would make it very difficult for the world to achieve a budget of 31 or 32. If China is around 14 and the world budget is 31 or 32, 
it would be very difficult for the world as a whole to achieve that budget. Now, this is just an illustration of what we have to do over these coming years or coming months, really, before Cancun, the next conference of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. We have to move from the 2 degrees centigrade to the emissions numbers that could correspond to 2 degrees centigrade. We have to move forward, of course, on the um, finance panel, which I described. We have to move forward on forestry. We have to move forward on sharing of technology. Sharing of technology is going to be fundamental here to the progress that we can make. And I would like to see a much stronger process on the sharing of technology. I know that China has a lot of ideas on this subject, and it would be wonderful if China led the way on the analysis of techniques and procedures and finance for the sharing of technology. That is an urgent part of the story and one where I think Chinese leadership over these coming months could be uh, very powerful. Now, I've spoken mostly about China because we're here in China and we're discussing economic growth. We should never forget that whilst China is a big part of the world, if you add up the rest of the world, it's much bigger. So the kinds of responsibilities and calculations that we know are going on very carefully in China should be going on much more carefully in the rest of the world. So please don't confuse my meaning. The fact that I'm here talking mostly about China does not mean that other countries are irrelevant. Of course, China is just a part of the world. The rest of the world has to do this work, and it has to do it strongly, and particularly it has to be done in the United States, which uh, is just behind China as the uh, next biggest emitter. There's lots to be said about forestry, which is extremely important, but I won't touch on it now. Now, let me talk just a moment or two, because I don't have much time left, on what sorts of policies. Now, we will need policies on many issues, but one of the most important will be a price for greenhouse gases. Those of you who studied economics at the London School of Economics, how many of you studied economics at London School of Economics? That's not that high a proportion. Well, the rest of you had your opportunity and you did not take it. <laughs> never mind, you can catch up. It's never too late. The, when we emit greenhouse gases, we cause damage to other people. Other people, in this case, mostly in the future. This is a market failure. We are not faced with the cost of our actions. When we buy labor, we pay for labor. When we buy raw materials, we pay for raw materials. When we rent space, we pay for the space. But if there's some cost to what you do, which you do not pay for, which other people bear, this is an externality. It is a market failure. This is the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. We, big part of policy is correcting that market failure. Once that market failure is corrected, we should be relying on the markets. We can't do all this by detailed planning. We have to bring in the markets. And that is a key part of the policy to correct the market failure so the markets work well. We can tax, we can have cap and trade, we can regulate. There are lots of ways of doing it, and they'll be different in different parts of the economy. And China, of course, is already moving strongly on many aspects of the regulatory side. But there are other things on technology I've already mentioned. There are many other aspects to policy. I'm just focusing on one aspect. So let me make one proposition since... Um, I've been an economic advisor to governments for much of the last 15 years, so I'd just like to make one policy recommendation in my statement. Let's think of coal. We should think of coal because it's so important around the world. Around the world, about 50% of electricity comes from coal. It's a very big issue. It's a very big issue here in China. Now, I've said there's a, a market failure here. One way of correcting the market failure is through a tax. I think cap-and-trade schemes actually are very interesting, and I know they're under a lot of discussion in China. But so is tax on carbon under discussion in China. Let's think what it might look like. Um, suppose we took $20 a tonne of CO2. Now, many estimates of what the tax should be are a bit higher than that. But let me take $20 just because we can uh, use a bit of simple mental arithmetic. $20 a tonne of CO2 as a tax would translate into roughly... Uh, $50 a tonne of coal, roughly. Actually, more like 55 but let's call it 50 for the point for the calculation. There are around 
3 billion tons of coal used in China. So 50 times 30, sorry, uh, let me uh, say that again. There are around 3 billion tons, must get my numbers right. There are about 3 billion tons of coal used in China. 50 times 3 is 150. So that would be $150 billion. That would be uh, roughly 3% of China's GDP. With 3% of Chinese GDP, we could do so much, uh, not me, <laughs> but the Chinese authorities could do so much, for example, on uh, funding health security. And that would in turn increase domestic consumption, which is a very important part of the readjustments that China will be making over these next uh, few years. And it's very much part of uh, government policy to increase uh, consumption, domestic consumption. Of course, we could use that sort of money to make very strong um, moves to encourage renewables and new technologies and energy efficiency and to protect those people who will be facing higher prices who might be poor. But this would not be huge price increases, only perhaps uh, 2 or 3%. So this is the example of a policy which we should all be discussing. We should be discussing taxation, we should be discussing cap and trade, we should be discussing regulations, and we should be doing this together as a world. Now, Jumin is a very good chairman, and he's told me I'm going on for too long. So let me close my uh, argument now. Um, I've tried to explain why low-carbon growth is so important, so important to the future of the world in bringing down the risks for climate change. I want to finish by underlining how exciting low-carbon growth is likely to be. We're motivated to do it because we think of climate change. But when we start to think about what's involved, and when we see the pace of technical change, when we see that this could be the most dynamic period in economic history as we explore and discover and innovate, because we can see the potential there already, when we recognize that low-carbon growth is more energy secure, it's cleaner, it's quieter, it's safer, and it's more di- more biodiverse. And when we further realize that high carbon growth over the medium term is a contradiction in terms, it will kill itself. First on, if we tried it, I hope we don't, first on high prices for hydrocarbon and second on the very hostile physical environment it will create. So I think that this is a very exciting new world over these next 10, 20 years. It's exciting if we get it right. It'd be very constructive if we get it right, but we are in danger of getting it wrong. I have strong confidence that in this new world of low-carbon growth, China will, already, well, China will be a leader, and I think we can already see from what China's doing that it is already a leader. Thank you very much. Thank you. Minister Liu, please. I'm sorry, I really don't know by UK culture whether I can stop a lord for talking. You did. <laughs> but I did, exactly. Successfully. Yeah. But fortunately, this is in Beijing. Yeah. Yeah, may I start? Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And thank Ms. Drumi, and also thanks for my friends. Then. Uh, uh, it's a great honor for me to speak here. Uh, the only pity is that I have no time to study in LSE. I studied a few years in Harvard. I, I, I realized that maybe I need to study in LSE in the future. Uh, because I'm not an expert in climate change. And uh, this question is quite complicated. So I prefer, I prefer to speak Chinese uh, instead of English. Please, please, please understand. <laughs> First of all, I would like to say thank you very much, Mr. Stern's presentation. He's an old friend of China. He's also an old friend of mine. Actually, when he was working at World Bank, I met him many times. Uh, he visited China many times. I re- still recall that Mr. Stern 
has proposed some advice for the development model of China's economy, and China has to export too much and uh, uh, social resources is backward. And his advice has been highly appraised and recognized by China. And in recent years, Mr. Stern, centering around climate change, has put forward many uh, many favorable suggestions, uh, which have very useful for China. Especially just now, he mentioned very correct ideas. For instance, China's. Low carbon technologies, China's coal, China's energy, China's traffic or transportation. I especially appreciate、uh, support of free trade. I think these ideas and opinions is of my appreciation. I was assigned ten minutes to speak. I want to share with you some of my own thoughts. Actually, I will talk about six points. First, we think that currently climate change, and to tackle that, tackle that is a major challenge facing the world. We should be serious in dealing with that at an early date. Meanwhile, we also stress or emphasize that different countries in different periods of development should follow the, prince,、uh, the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, because climate change involves people's、uh, survival and development. Every country, every institution, every individual has its responsibility. By difference, my own understanding is that there are two points involved. First, different countries are in the different stages of development. In the future, maybe they will still take different roads of development. For the existing accumulative、uh, effect of CO2, they should should have different responsibilities. Second, by difference,、uh, due to the、uh, given the division of in,、uh, international labor, in the coming decade、uh, it will change. China will be the largest producer, and also at the same time has become the large the world's largest importer and consumer, and many. Capabilities of China will be turning, will be shifting to other countries. Under that circumstance, in that case, by then, the targets、uh, in the future, we should discuss more questions. This is my first、uh, idea. Second, I think in today's world, in the long perspective. It is likely that we are faced with two challenges. First, climate change, which is has posted posed a long-standing challenge for people for, in the world, maybe in the coming thirty or fifty years. But effects of it has been strongly felt. Second, in the post-crisis period or era, we have seen that. The international markets have been on the downturn, on the decline. That was due to the worsening of the balance of balance sheets of developed countries, plus the aging population、uh, phenomena. So we have faced another challenge: the huge international market.、Uh, what should what will uh, 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 drives drive the international market? So large a market, and currently, United States' current consumption model cannot sustain. And the future, where will the huge international market lie? In maybe in the next five or ten years, we should focus on that.、Uh, pay attention to that. That's my second point. Third, 
among these two challenges, I think China will play a key role. By this key role, China should step up the shifting of the development model and restructure its economy so that its economic growth can be on a new track. In the past, or in the recent, recently, we held a meeting about sh shifting the development pattern or model. That meeting is not held was not held uh, due to the international pressure because we ourselves have recognized that the current development model should be shifted, should be improved. Because the international markets are on the decline, we have seen that the international environment. Energy environment is uh, declining. The traditional development model cannot be sustainable. We have been faced and recognized the social, uh, various kinds of challenges. In this case, the shifting of the economic development model to uh, improve the process of uh, urbanization and improve the ratio of tertiary industry and uh, pursue the low carbon economic road. All of this. Will be possible for us to create the largest demand, but also possible for us to make our due role, due contribution to the tackling of the uh, climate change globally. The fourth point, as far as this shifting concerned, and the pursuing of low carbon economy and energy conserving. Conservation and、uh, emission reduction. What's the key issue here? We think that the most critical issue is that we should cultivate our interests track through our reform. We need to create new interests mechanisms so that enterprises and markets entities can adopt the new road. So, in this sense, we think that many reform measures are necessary. Or even is deterministic, or deciding, we need to strengthen the pricing reform so that our prices can reflect the relationship between demand and supply. We need to intensify our taxation reform system so that the crude motive production and consumption will.、Uh, Undertake price. We need to proceed our financial reform so that we can give large room for the development of the small and medium-sized enterprises. And we need to shift, improve the governmental functions so that it can provide more quality services. So, talking about the low-carbon economy, we need to shift the current economic development pattern, and that entails the reforms. Without a new track to be built, all is empty talk. Number five, like Mr. Stern mentioned, in the future China will create a huge market and play a key role in the development of the low carbon economy. International cooperation is critical and essential. The foundation of it is based on mutual understanding among countries. I would like to brief you on something.、Uh, this information, because I hope the friends here can understand better the unique history of China, the unique culture of China, and this cultural history has allowed has made,、uh, made China. Adopt uniquely distinctive policies. I want to point out that several features to come. I hope the international community will pay attention to this. First of all, the Chinese nation is good at thinking strategically, strategically because in the past we suffered a lot. Many are sufferings that other countries have not. Experienced, so we tend to and we will to adopt a long-term perspective. Second, Chinese people have a future. We want to reserve some room in our remarks 
I do not want to be aggressive in bold remarks. Once we have said something, we honor that. We will do that. We honor our words, our commitments, our promises. We think our promises is more important than our life. Third, just pri- like prior to the meeting, I discussed with Mr. Stern.、Uh, Chinese friends would like to listen to friends' advice instead of critical and hostile. Finger pointing, and when I succumb to the unwise, incorrect international pressure, that will worsen the relationship between them and China. I don't know whether I have enough time or not. How many? Ah, ten. Okay. Ah, ah. The fourth characteristic. Is that with the development of the market economy and the private uh, economy, uh, we have fa-、uh, uh, ability to make a fast adjustment. We can adapt to the changes constantly. So I think mutual trust is of great importance. The mutual trust must be based on mutual understanding of uh, uh, respective cultures. I think it is the same for all countries. If We want to create a good negotiation environment or international environment. We have to go back to culture, history, and mutual respect. This is of great importance. Last but not least, I would like to say the success of things depends not only on good wishes, not only on the setting of targets, but more important. It depends on the roots. So, the initial conditions depends on the roots、uh, reliance, and、uh, it also depends on sufficient incentives. If we have good、uh, choice of roots and、uh, sufficient incentives, maybe we can、um, reach our targets in a better way. On this issue, I have talked with Mr. Stern. In a Franco、uh, manner,、uh, I think uh, we should create an、uh, uh, external environment so that the market mechanism can play a greater role, so that uh, the uh, market participants can promote the innovation and uh, um, uh, deployment of low-carbon、uh, technology through competition.、Uh, overall. With regard to the global and the social consensus on climate change, I'm very optimistic. I'm not pessimistic about it. I believe the outcome and the results maybe、uh, go beyond our imagination. Though we are facing many difficulties and challenges, the prospect is bright. Thank you.